All right, you guys ready to jump into the Word of God? So I want to teach into uh, something today called living stones. Um, if you've been around church for a while, I'm sure you've heard this, about how the, the fact that we are called living stones. Peter talks about this. Um, the whole picture is, is there's, a, there's a spiritual temple, the Bible says, that's being built. Um, and you and I are part of that, and we're called, we're called living stones. And so we're going to get into what that means. And part of that is how that relates to um, our grace teams and you know, why we do the sign-up the way we do, how we serve one another, um, ministry teams, what we, most people would call ministry teams, why we call them grace teams. So we're going to get into a little bit of that and so, so kind of settle that as we kind of go into the new year. Uh, some of you guys are new and haven't heard me talk about this. Some of the details of uh, how we do this specifically I've taught in other lessons, so you're welcome to go online and chase those down. A lot of times it'll be at the beginning of the, of the year, so you can go back and look at grace teams um, and how, how, they're, uh, how we talk into them, because I list a lot of the, the gifts and how, how to help understand whether those gifts are something God's given you, what they look like, how they work together with other gifts, that kind of thing. So I've done a lot of that in the past. But today I want to talk about like the, really just the theological foundation of why we do grace teams, why we serve one another, why is it that we ask you to serve. The Bible says that my role as a leader is to equip you for works of service. That's what God's called me to do, to do your ministry, the work of your ministry, not mine, yours. I have a ministry too. Um, it's not just preaching on a Sunday morning. That's part of what I do, but I also have other parts of mine. Um, but my job is not to do the work of the ministry. Um, it's to equip you to do the work of the ministry. Now, that's the role I play. Now, let me take myself away from the role and just be me, Dave. I'm also being equipped to do the work of my ministry. And so I, I don't get out of it, right? It's just like, oh, I'm, I'm going to hide. I was joking with somebody about the green room. I'm going to hide in the green room and, you know, and, and eat cookies until it's my time to come out and do my thing for you and then walk away. You never get to know me. That's not how that works. And Paul was big about that. He says, you've known me. You've know, you know how I live. You've been to my house or his tent, as the case may be. He goes, you know what my lifestyle is like. So this is not, none of this stuff is new. So he went after that in a big way. Um, what I want to talk about and how I want to begin this is talk about Jesus and the foundation of how all, where all this comes from because it's really important. It talks about it in, in uh, Ephesians. We're going to get to that in a second. But Jesus is mentioned all over Scripture, um, whether it's prophetically. We're going to talk about that in just a second. But especially in the New, New Testament, the New Covenant, he's talked about as, as a foundation stone, as a cornerstone, a precious stone, a stumbling stone. One, one other place even talks about him being the capstone. So Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega. So he's the foundation stone, or he's the cornerstone that begins a building, and he's the capstone that, that finishes the building out. And so it's fascinating how, how he's described. And, and it it's actually begins, like I said, prophetically, um, David, about a 1,000 years before Christ, in the Psalms, Psalm 118, he says it this way. He said, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And so it's really fascinating scripture how this works. Um, it's fascinating in the sense that, that, uh, that Jesus comes on the scene and he's a rabbi, he's considered a rabbi, but he's rejected by the religious people of his day. It's, it's always fascinating to me when I read the Gospels especially that Jesus doesn't get mad at prostitutes, tax collectors, you know, you know the sinners, what we would call sinners, like the real sinners of the day. He doesn't get angry with them. The only people he gets angry with are religious people. <laughs> But it helps to define religious because some, some people, religious are godly people, sometimes. Religious is, you know, is a very definitive term, but godly people are not always religious people, and religious people are not always godly people. It's helpful to understand that. And so Jesus never got angry at people who were broken and who were caught up in sin, who then would find their way to, to, you know, to understand why they can put away their brokenness and come into wholeness. He never had a problem with how broken people could be. 
What he had a problem with is people denying that they were broken in the first place. Isn't that interesting? Like, talk about a rebel, man. He just, he just messes religion up everywhere he goes. He still does that. And this scripture has kind of been a prophetic word that when Jesus came on the scene, the stones that the builders rejected became the cornerstone. So he, he, he speaks to this, and we're going to get to it in a minute, um, where Peter and John are actually brought before the Sanhedrin, and, and they're having a conversation, and, and Peter brings this passage back up and plants it right at the feet of the religious leaders of the day because they were supposed to be the ones building the kingdom, and they were doing anything but that. They were building building their own kingdoms and calling it God's kingdom. That's not the same thing. So let me just explain a cornerstone because it's helpful to understand this. Um, I'm going to show a, a picture real quick. This is, uh, this is the Temple Mount um, in, in Jerusalem, was in Jerusalem. The Temple Mount, the big flat area, um, part of that obviously is still there. This was Herod. Herod actually expanded. It almost doubled the size of the original Temple Mount where Solomon's temple set. This, this temple here, you see the temple there, and then back down on this corner at the very bottom, you see um, this is the cornerstone, and, and this is one of the cornerstones. It, again, this is a big edifice. This is actually a retaining wall, for lack of a better term. Um, and you know that's true. They actually set it back so that it would hold the, it would hold the soil behind it, and then they would build it up. And, the, and some of these stones, like this one in particular, um, is, is 40 tons, something along the, those lines. Some of them are even bigger than that. There's one particular stone when Karen and I were in, in Israel. We got to go underneath, behind the wailing wall, um, underneath in the tunnels behind there. There's one particular um, stone that is 40 feet long, 14 feet thick, and 11 feet tall. So just think about that for a second. It weighs, it weighs the same amount as two jumbo jets full of people and all their luggage. <laughs> and somehow they managed, they, the, the place that they would cut these stones from was about a mile away, and they would get them here and they would place these stones on top. One of the ways that they were able to do it is that as they would build the wall, they would fill in the dirt behind it and then bring the stone in on level dirt and put the stone in place. But this is one of the things that's fascinating. If you notice with this stone, there's no concrete, there's no mortar, there's nothing like that. They cut the stone so perfectly, they call it dry construction. Think in terms of Legos. <laughs> right? There's, no, there's nothing holding them together. Even with Legos, it clicks down on it. These sit literally on top of one another, but they were so perfectly cut that they've, they've stood for literally 2,000 years. So when the Roman general came in and he destroyed Titus, when he came in and just tried to destroy Jerusalem, um, part of what he did was he, he pushed all the rocks from the temple. He tore the temple down. He took all the walls in this, in this temple mount and he pushed or all the stones and, and he had his soldiers push them over or horses try to pull them and push them over, over until they got to these stones. <laughs> and there was not enough horses in, in all of Rome to pull down these stones. They just couldn't do it. They couldn't move them, literally couldn't move them, which is a testimony, again, to the, to the settledness of, of the kingdom of God. And God's like, look, when, when I put a cornerstone in, you can try all you, all you want, but you're not moving it. That's not how it works. And so cornerstone's really interesting. Most of the time they were the largest rock in the building. Um, 1792, um, they put the cornerstone for the White House. And, and we, you don't see it very often because of where they put it, but it started in 1792, they started with the cornerstone of, of the White House, and it took them eight years to finish the White House. So John Adams was the first president to come into the White House. I'm a history buff, if you can't tell. So I, I love this kind of stuff. But what's fascinating about that was that was kind of a ceremonial cornerstone. So they put that in, it usually has an inscription of the date that the construction was started, sometimes the people who helped build it. You find this all over the place. You find cornerstones in buildings like downtown Dothan, there's a couple of them with some cornerstones in place. But they were more ceremonial than anything else. 
But when they built, when they built back then in, in antiquity, they would build with these cornerstones, and the cornerstone had to be perfect. Because again, they're oftentimes building with dry construction, so it couldn't be off-level at all. Because if, if it was off-level, you know, a fraction of an inch, by the time you got 20 stories high, in the case of this wall, this wall the, the, the stones that were put in there, the ones that remained are four stories high. So it was even taller than that on the corner of the temple. Oh, sorry, the corner of the Temple Mount. And so, so it had to be perfect. So the cornerstone was usually the largest rock. It had to be perfectly set in. They spent an inordinate amount of time on setting that one rock in place. And the reason for that is because every rock that came into the construction after that had to come, be measured from, and be set by that original rock, that cornerstone. The other thing it did is it oftentimes defined the angle. So it would start with here, and it would be on the corner of a building. So it would start this direction. It would show the direction this way, and it would also show the direction this way. So either way you looked, it was defining the direction of the building in, in every direction. Um, like I said, some, some of the stones weighed upward of you know, 40 tons, and some of them even uh, more than that. Um, and they had to be solid. They had to be, they had to be perfectly set. They had to be solid. And part of the reason why is the entire building would rest upon that stone, right? So the whole idea was that if the cornerstone was off in any form or fashion, whatever you built on it, no matter how well you built it, it would not stand. Over time, eventually, the building would fall down. So we hear us talk about this all the time in, in, um, in terms of how God builds and the patterns that God builds for our life. We talk about this, why should you have a, a, a godly marriage, a biblical marriage? Why is that so important? Because it's a foundation stone, right? And if you do it differently than the, than the God who designed it, if you do it differently, then the expectation is if you get it off in any direction, one way or the other, the more you build on it, at some point it's going to fall over. We see this happen very often. The, the leaning tower of Pisa, right, in Italy, where all the people are, like, taking the pictures or they're holding the whole thing up. That, that wasn't so much the foundation stones. It was the foundation underneath it began to give way. So either way, and that's where Jesus talks about building your house on the rock, right? It, it, so when the storms come, not if they come. We talked about it during closing the worship time out about how trouble comes to this world, right? We're living a broken world, and having a Christian worldview and an understanding helps us understand how things work and how things ought to work. So what do you push back against? You know, if, again, if there's no absolute right and wrong, um, you can argue with someone and they can inconvenience you, but you have no right to tell them they're wrong. So that works? It's a simple equation. I'm listening right now, going through uh, C.S. Lewis uh, in the 50s did this thing on the BBC where he would talk, he, he actually would, he did these talks that ended up becoming the book Mere Christianity, and he'd do these talks in the first couple of them about right and wrong as a clue to the meaning of the universe. And it's really, really powerful. If you've never read it or never, you can go online and listen to it. You can actually listen to him doing the talks, really fascinating. But it all comes down to if the foundation is not set, and, and that's why the, this cornerstone is so important, if the foundation isn't set, it doesn't matter how, how you build after that. It's not going to stand. So it's helpful to understand that. So um, this concept about the stone, the cornerstone, picks up after David about 200 years later. So David prophesies about 1,000 years before Christ. And about 200 years or so later, um, Isaiah comes and he prophesies and talks about it as well. And this is what he said. He said, the Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. He is the one you are to dread. Remember, this is old covenant. It's not new covenant. It goes on. He says, he will be a holy place for both Israel and Judah. He will be a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And for the people of Jerusalem, he will be a trap and a snare. That doesn't sound like good news, does it? 
<laughs> and so the good news, when Jesus comes and, and the gospel is proclaimed, Jesus is the good news, right? If you accept Christ and you put your faith in Christ, then you don't have to worry about any of this. But the challenge was, what, what was coming is there were people who were religious and people who were selfishly motivated and they had ambition, selfish ambition, and those people who had selfish ambition were never going to stand up to the rock that was coming. So Jesus becomes the rock, the Bible says, that if you, if you love God, if you, if you lean into God and you understand who he is and what he's asking of you and you lean into Christ and you recognize that it's not your, it's not your works that accomplish anything in the kingdom but, but trusting in the work that was done by Christ, then you become, that to you becomes a cornerstone. It becomes a rock. It becomes a foundation stone. But to people who want to live in their own self-righteousness, people who have selfish motivation and ambition, especially religious leaders, it, he became a rock that causes nothing but offense. Even now, people want listen, when you have a conversation with someone that says, you know, I'm fine with you being a Christian, but I, you know, I don't care about all that. You know, it doesn't matter what you believe just as long as you believe something sincerely. Well, that's just stupid. Let's just be honest about that, right? And it's easy to, to thwart that. But the challenge comes in, when people don't understand who Jesus is, right? Because Jesus made some interesting claims. One of the things he says, he said um, that there's no other way into heaven but through the name of Christ. Acts chapter uh, 4 verse 12 talks about that. No other name under heaven by, when, by which men will be saved. John 10 talks about that and he says, I'm the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. I didn't say that. And sometimes I wish Jesus hadn't said that because it causes problems for me as a follower of Christ, right? Because it's pretty exclusive. It's like, well, you just believe in your God and I'll believe in mine. Nope, Jesus doesn't give you that option. You've got to pick something. People say, well, he's a good teacher. Yes, he was, but he also claimed to be God. I and the Father are one. That's what the religious leaders took him to the crossover, by the way. So it's not, it's not a small thing. So he becomes this to, to, to people who want to trust and believe in something else. He becomes an incredible stumbling stone. To the Jews of this day who don't accept Christ as the Messiah, he is the stumbling stone, the rock of offense that will not go away. So Isaiah talks about that. And then again in um, Isaiah 20 up, 28, he picks it up again. He says it this way. So this is what the sovereign Lord says. See, I lay a stone in Zion, in the holy city, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. The one who relies on it will never be stricken with panic. The rock, when, when, when life throws me curveballs, Jesus knocks them out of the park, right? Because <laughs> you can't throw a curveball at somebody who invented the ball. You just can't do that. That's not how it works. And so what I've discovered is when I've placed my trust and my faith in Christ, where I find myself crumbling is where I have not placed my faith and trust in Christ. Right? We were talking about that earlier during worship time. When, when, I, when something happens that disturbs my faith, it, is it this? Is it you have never actually discovered who God is in that, re, in, in that regard? Have you, never, have you never done the work? When you follow Christ, the expectation is you're asking hard questions of him. He never had a problem with hard questions. Still doesn't. He has no problem with your hard questions. Listen, God, Christ doesn't care how smart you are. He made your brain. Okay, He really doesn't care how smart you are. But are you too smart for your own good? I've never seen people so dumb as intellectual people. I'm just being honest. I'm, I'm a critical thinker. When I do the strength finder test, that comes up in a big way. I like to read. I like to study. I like to research. I like to think. But at some point, I have to, I have to be honest about where truth lies. 
I have to make that decision. One of the things that helped lead me to the Lord was Josh McDowell wrote a book based on mere Christianity from C.S. Lewis called More Than a Carpenter. And in it he said, he said Jesus was one of three things. You don't get a hundred options when you're talking about Christ. He's either he was a liar, right? In other words, he knew who he, he knew he wasn't God, but he pretended to be God because it benefited him. He was a liar. He was a lunatic. He thought he was God. He really wasn't. Kind of like the guy who thinks he's Napoleon today, right? But, so they put him in a home. Or he was who he said he was. Those are your only three options. That's it. People say, well, I don't know, you know, this crazy stuff about did Jesus rise from the dead. Listen, there, the, go, go study this somewhere. If you want to have doubts and you want to talk about why you're justified in not believing in Christ, there is a million ways to do it. But it's not honest. That's the problem with it. It's not honest. And so he becomes a stumbling block. And this is what Jesus said. But if you trust in him, it's the prophet saying this all the way up to, if you trust in him and you place your faith in him, you're never going to have to be dismayed. In other words, when the storms come, not if they come, but when the storm comes, your house will stand. Why? Not because you have such an amazing house. You don't. <laughs> because you have such an amazing foundation upon which your house stands. That's the key. And so it has to be about Jesus. It can't be about anything else. So God was establishing an eternal cornerstone in Christ. Long before Jesus ever showed up on the scene, from the foundations of time, the Bible says, the Lamb was slain. Even before, we've talked about this when we talk about the law and the new covenant, even before time, God was established as a stone. Stone of, of benefit to those who put their faith in him and trust in him. One scripture says it this way. It says, if you fall upon the rock, you'll be broken. But if the rock falls on you, you will be crushed. That's a frightening, frightening scripture. But it challenges us to go, okay, let me fall upon the rock. Let me, let me see. Let me test and see whether Jesus is who he actually said he was. Let me actually pursue that. Let me do it this way. It's so what Josh McDowell said. Let me put truth on the throne of my heart. Not some version of Jesus, right? Maybe you grew up Baptist or maybe you grew up Mormon. Maybe you grew up whatever. It doesn't matter. You were, you were taught something about who Jesus was. Maybe it was true. Maybe it wasn't. I don't know. But at some point, you owe yourself you owe yourself the ability to go and find out for yourself whether those things be true. Because if they're not true and you believe them, you're building your life on a lie. Paul said, we are at, if, as Christians, if this is not true, if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, if this truth about who he was isn't true, then we as Christians are the most to be pitied in the entire world. But if not, if it is true, if it is true, then it changes everything. And that's what he was talking about in this scripture. Peter, so now Peter, years later, Peter stands up. So Peter's heard these stories about the rock of offense. He's heard these stories. He's read these as a young man. Um, by the time he was 13, he was required to memorize the first five books of the Bible. That's part of what it meant to, to, to do your, mar, your bar mitzvah as a, as a Jewish child. He said, I put away, when I was a, a child, I put away, uh, I mean, uh, when I became a man, I put away childish things, right? So that's where that challenge comes in. It's okay, now take responsibility for your faith. For who you, what you believe, it's not your mama's faith anymore. It's yours now at 13. That's a testimony that maybe we should pay more attention to. So, so here's Peter, who's heard all these stories, who now has encountered the living Christ. He followed him for three years. He saw the miracles. He saw the signs and wonders. He heard him talk to the crowds, and then he sat around the campfire, and he asked the questions, the hard questions about who Jesus was. Jesus comes and says, um, who do men say, say that I am? And Peter, you know, he's like, ah, you know, here's who people say you are. You're, you're John, or you're, you know, you're the prophet Elijah. Come back. This is what the world thinks, right, even the religious world. 
And Jesus always comes back to this, and he comes back to this with you personally, and he asks this question, yes, but who do you say I am? Because, see, that's the most important thing, who Jesus is to you. Not that you make up your own truth. That's very popular in today's world. It's also very stupid, right? It's not living in reality. Anybody with a brain knows that. I mean, apparently you have to go to Hollywood to get convinced that you don't have a brain anymore. I don't know why that is, but it's like if I can pretend to be somebody I'm not, you should listen to everything I say about religion and philosophy and politics. Maybe not the best qualifications. I'm just saying I'd like to see a resume, right? So my point is is that at some point you have to make a decision about who Jesus is. Is he to you a rock of offense or is he to you the, the, the foundation stone for your life? And you're going to, here's the thing. You don't get a choice about whether you build. People are like, oh, I'm just choosing not to participate. <laughs> no, you don't get to do that. We talk about this all the time. We're trying to improve as a church. We're trying to improve our systems. As we grow, our systems have to get better. One of those is how we do grace teams. We're constantly trying to build our systems and make our systems better, right? People say, well, I don't have a system for that. Oh, you have a system for it. It sucks, you have a system for it. Do you have a system for your, for your personal growth as a leader? No, I don't. Yes, you do. <laughs> you have a system, and it's really bad, which is why you're not growing as a leader. So everybody has a system. And the same, the same thing, everybody has a worldview. Everybody's building on something. I promise you, you are. You're e- either building on a rock or you're building on sand. You're doing one of, one of the two. You don't get an option not to build. You don't get to opt out. It's not something you can do. So here's Peter standing before the Sanhedrin now. And what he does is he's, he's preaching this gospel, and now he's being, he's being persecuted for it. He's brought before the religious leaders, and he remembers how Jesus treated the religious leaders and why, what, their, what their ambitions were, what their uh, thoughts were, what their design was for Christ and, and the church, and he recognizes it's not a good thing. This is what he tells them. This is Acts chapter 4, verse 11. It's really, really challenging. He said, Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. So he's quoting from that, that psalm. He, they know that psalm, right? They know it backwards and forwards. And he reminds them, you're written about in the Bible, and it is not good. <laughs> How'd you like to discover that you're in Scripture, and it turns out you're the bad guy? You're the antagonist. That's not just like, oh, wait, <laughs> can we rewrite this? The answer is yes. Nicodemus rewrote it. He was one of the bad guys. He was one of the ones Jesus called a snake, right, a pit of vipers. And he had an encounter with Jesus. He asked the question. He's like, Lord, how in the world can you be born again? Can you go back into your mother's womb? That's crazy. And, and Jesus said to him, you're the leader of Israel, and you don't understand this. That's sad, Nicodemus. That had to hurt. Don't you think that had to hurt? With his, his capability, his wisdom, his understanding, his learnedness, his, his, his command of the Scripture at the time, Jesus said, man, Nicodemus, you're so dumb. <laughs> you're so ignorant. How do you not know this and you're the leader of Israel? That's a smack in the face. But what Nicodemus did is he fell on the rock, right? He could have taken that as offense. He could have said, well, who are you? And Jesus said, well, I pretty much told you who I was. <laughs> You have to choose to believe it or not. But, but the Bible tells us Nicodemus fell on that rock, and he was broken because of it, and then Jesus became, became his cornerstone. So here's, here's this, this challenge to the religious leaders. He ver- goes on, verse 12, I quoted it earlier. He says, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. He pretty much laid it out. He said, 
you guys have been praying for a Messiah. You've been asking for a Messiah. The Messiah shows up. You don't like he do, how he does business because you've been doing the business all this time, and, and now you're all upset. Um, most people don't know this. You study, study the context and, and, and history, the history of, of Scripture. It's really helpful to do that, understanding context. Part of what happened with the religious rulers of the day is they were compensated for what they did, which is not a bad thing. It's the way God designed it. You know, there were priests, and priests were, were, were given certain um, certain accommodations, they were given certain things, some things they, they couldn't have, like they, they couldn't own land, um, but there were certain things that they do, we're going to get into that just in a minute, about s- service and sacrifice. The expectation is they would be provided for. Meat came to them. They didn't even have to go to Publix to get it. It just came to them, right? They brought it as part of sacrifices. And they got to keep some of the best parts. So there was an understanding that if you're going to be part of this, if you're going to be the leader, then there's an expectation. God has no problem benefiting you, Right? Um, the chief priest, the one who was at the top of the game, because the, the, the priesthood, in, in some respects, even though this is a little bit different, but the, the Sanhedrin at the time, the leaders of Jerusalem at the time, the leaders of Israel at the time, they were the religious leaders, but they, they also were the political leaders. So they were the, they were the religion and they were the government at the same time. It's hard for us to wrap our head around. Um, we see this in Iran now, even though that it's a religious government, it's not so good. We, we get that. But in, in the kingdom of heaven, that's the way God designed it. They're going to be the political leaders as well as the religious leaders. So why, why does that matter? The chief priest, based on the economy at the time, was what we would call a billionaire. His role brought in so much money and so much prestige to not just himself but to his family that he was, he was basically, you know, he was the... One percent. So a certain percentage of the earnings went to them, and then a certain percentage of that went to him as the chief priest. Do you think he had a dog in the fight when Jesus said, we're going to do away with the priesthood? It's like, huh, I'm about to lose my job. And it's not like I've been working at McDonald's, right, whatever the Israeli version of that was at the time. <laughs> He's like, I'm about to lose my wealth and my ability for my kids to keep getting my wealth. Jesus said, yeah, we're going to tear that all down. That'll motivate you. And as you see, his motivation was to destroy Jesus, to attempt to kill Jesus, to to kill the Messiah, right? So wrapped up in greed that he couldn't recognize Messiah. So wrapped up in who who he thought he was that he couldn't see the rock and he stumbled over it rather than falling upon it and allowing it to break him. It's a challenging thought. So Peter leans back, and he goes after this. So he, he, he declares to the Sanhedrin, Jesus is this, this one, this rock we've been talking about. And he goes, he picks it up, and he builds upon that idea in his letter, um, 1 Peter 2 4, 8, through 8. And I'm going to read it, and then we're going to make a couple of comments, and we'll be done. So this is what it says in 1 Peter 2, verse 4. It says, as you come to him, the living stone. So you know Jesus is cornerstone. He's foundation stone, a capstone at one point. He's a stumbling stone. He's a lot of different things. Here it says... He's a living stone, right? As you come to him, the living stone, capitalized, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him. Verse 5, and we're going to talk about this for the rest of the message. You also, talking about you and I as believers, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. Hear that? You're being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. See, it's, it's not that you're offering sacrifices to try to get him to accept you. It's saying that the spiritual sacrifices that you were offering are already acceptable to Christ because you're in him. 
you who are living stones, let's do it again, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. The only way your sacrifices are acceptable are through Christ. And we're going we're to get to that in just a second. Verse 6 says, For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion. See how he's quoting this again. This is Isaiah 28 coming back. See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. That's Isaiah 28. And then verse 7 says, Now to you who believe, that's you and I as believers, now to you who, you who believe, <clears throat> this stone is precious. Is Jesus precious to you? Do you count him, do you ascribe to him his worth and his value as being true? Have you discovered him? Do you see him accurately? Most of us do not, which is so, why so often he becomes a stumbling stone rather than a precious stone, as Scripture calls him. He says, to those of you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Psalm 118 again. And a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. He includes that from Isaiah. They stumble because they disobey the message. Listen to this. They stumble because they, because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. What he's saying is this. He's saying they stumble because Jesus comes on the scene and he says, the way you've been doing it, was set up to show you you can't do it that way. That's the law, right? He's saying, here's what the law was designed for. It was to show you the fact that you needed a Savior, a Messiah who would come. That this is God's plan. This is God's program. That the law is a process to get you to understand the new covenant. The old covenant was a picture of what you can do wrong and why you're doing wrong. And it was supposed to show you the contrast between you, where you are, and your unholiness, your lostness, your brokenness, your selfish ambition, whatever that looks like, and contrast that with the perfection that is God. And Scripture goes through great lengths to tell us that the two cannot be reconciled unless God himself comes in the perfect sacrifice and lays his own life down on your behalf. If he does that, now he's perfect. Jesus was perfect, never sinned once. And he laid his life down as a sacrifice on your behalf. What does that mean? That means that you have to decide to make use of it. It wasn't automatic. He didn't say, I've come and because I, I did what I did, everybody's saved regardless of what they do or what they believe. Not true. Scripture goes after that in big ways. It says that you must place your trust in what God did and how he did it. You don't get to choose your own way. That's the stumbling block. See, this is how Jesus works it. Jesus comes in and says, this is my message. This is the gospel. This is the truth. There is no other way. You can pick and choose. You can do everything you want to do. But at the end of it all, the Bible says that there's going to come a day when every man will be judged, either for his own actions or he's placed his trust in, in, in Christ and he's paid the penalty for any sin or brokenness that I had. If he does that, he has become the rock on which you stand, and you will never fall away. But what sometimes Christians sin, yep, and sometimes lost people do righteous things. Doesn't change the state they're in. Only thing that changes the state that they're in is what are they believing in. This is why people get this so wrong all the time. I watch it in, in our culture all the time. It's like, so what you're saying is if I don't believe in Jesus, I'm going to hell. No, what I'm, what I'm saying is if you believe in Jesus, you don't have to, you knothead right? 
Why? Because, because the argument really isn't if I believe in Jesus. The argument is, you mean I have to stop doing everything my own way and, 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 and no longer be the God of my own life? Yes, that is exactly what I'm trying to say. Are you willing to fall on the rock and be broken, or are you going to stumble over the rock, the rock falls on you, and you're going to get crushed? Because the Bible says it this way. It says, at one point, every knee will bow, right? Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. I picture that day sometimes in my head. That's an easy one for me because I placed all my trust in, in Christ, and so my, I bowed my knee a million times before I get to that day. I've confessed a million times before I ever get to that day. I believe it in my heart. It's not just something I say with my lips because we know the difference. I believe it with everything I am, and I'm living my lifestyle that way. I'm confessing Christ, and I've bowed my knee. One day, to bow my knee before him in all of his presence and all of his glory, you think that's going to be hard? As a believer, that's going to be the most glorious thing we've ever gotten to do because we've been practicing for however many years we've been alive in this world. But to those who don't believe, those who've chosen to do it their own way, they're still going to bow. They're not going to want to. They're not. They're not going to want to, but they're going to bow nonetheless. And that's, that's frightening. I, I don't like some of these scriptures. <laughs> like I said, I'm like, Jesus, I, you know, and then I look at his way, and I see the grace and the kindness and the goodness of God, and I'm like, there is no, I mean, he's, he, he's done it the best way possible because the moment I understood his grace and his kindness towards me, I couldn't wait to bow my knee. I couldn't wait to lay my life down and, and, and come to him empty and say, God, fill me up. I, I, I've obviously been doing it wrong this whole time. That's an easy decision. But pride and arrogance that somehow I've gotta, it's got to be my way. Elvis Presley saying it, you know, Frank Sinatra saying it, my way. Wonder how that worked out. Right? Because in this life, you can do that. But the day will come when every knee will bow and every tongue confess. That's helpful, right? Because we get to do time exists, this bubble called time. Because outside of the bubble called time is eternity. There is no change in eternity. Inside the bubble of time, there's opportunity for change, whether at the beginning or at the end. Karen's dad was almost 90 years old when he made a confession for Christ. He lived his whole life without serving God in any form or fashion in so many different ways. Some ways, the giftedness that was in his life was, was expressed. He was a generous man. There's, there's lots of things you could see God even in that, right? And a life that was lived for himself. But in the end, it had nothing to do with how many years he was obedient or disobedient because that's not what God requires. <laughs> and aren't you thankful? Karen and I gave our lives to the Lord when we were in our early 20s, Right? So the Bible says there's, there's rewards for that. It's wonderful. That's, that's great. But what's the real reward, right? Is it I get a bigger house than you? I'm pretty sure I'm not going to care about how big my house is in heaven. I'm pretty sure I'm not going to care, right? I'm, ca- I'm caring about who's there. That's what Jesus is all about. And he's a joy to me. And I, I believe that he's that to you as well. So Peter covers three things in verse 5, and I want to end, end with these three things. They're simple, so it won't take long. He said, you're a spiritual house. He said, you have a place. You're a spiritual house. This is what God's doing. I I mentioned this in prayer time. Um, God is in me for me, for my sake. He's on me to help others, and he's among us as a church for the sake of our city. See, he builds in us. He puts his spirit in us, and we find peace. We find wholeness. We find substance. We find meaning. We find life. All these beautiful things that come because he's in us. 
He, he's in me to bless me, and I love it, and I wouldn't have it any other way. He's, he's, he's on me. He works in my gift, the, the grace gift that I have, the ministry you know, that, that God has given me to teach, to preach, to speak. Um, whatever those gifts are, when I lead worship, to be creative in, in, in creating an environment musically and, and vocally for, for the worship of God. All those are gifts that he placed on my life so that I can be fruitful in what God has called me to, right? To help other people, to bless you. I can do that at the house and bless myself, but I do that here so I can be a blessing to other people. And then when he works among us as a body of people, because there's gift, there are gifts that you have that I don't have, and then how those all work together to build up the body of Christ, to make it whole and healthy in every way, and to release the power of God into the world, right? Into the city that we're a part of, into your sphere of influence. That is God, he's given you a place. You are a spiritual house. You and I are a spiritual house. We're built together for something very specific. Ephesians talks about that. He says, consequently, you're no longer foreigners or strangers, but fellow citizens of God's people and members of his household. Built on the foundation of the apostles and, and prophets. Those are big rocks, right? With Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. Goes on, it says, in him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. See, the church is a beautiful thing, and we miss it. You, if you make the mistake of thinking you attend church and that you're not the church, you've missed the whole point of church. Right? I love, I love being here on a Sunday morning. I love it. I love what God's doing, but I love it mostly because of what he does in, in us and among us. That's the part I love. We're a spiritual house being built together for something. So the idea introduced by Paul, but you see it throughout, the, especially the New Testament, that you have a place, you have gifts, you have callings on your life, there are passions that he's put inside of you, that if you lean into those, you become a blessing, not just to yourself, but you also become a blessing to others. Secondly, in, in, first, in, second, in Peter 5, he says, verse 5, he says, you are a holy priesthood. In other words, you have a role to play. If you believe in Christ, you have been made holy. I've talked about that. Your holiness is not built on how well you follow the rules. Because some of us aren't really good at that. And quite frankly, some of us have built things into our life before we met Jesus that are foundations that need to be torn down. I have ways about me. I have patterns in my life. I have habits that don't, they're not telling me who I am. Only Jesus can do that, right? I've made a decision for Christ. Some of those habits still remain. Part of growing and learning who we are in Christ and learning who he is and who we are is to help push away, the, the Bible says it this way, to have our minds transform, our, our, our lives transformed by the renewing of our mind. We're learning who God is and how he works in us, and we're, we're transformed. How does that work? Maybe you had a horrible marriage that failed. Because you didn't, know, you didn't know that God's design for marriage looked differently than what you'd been taught by your parents or maybe not taught by your parents, whatever the case may be. And so all of a sudden you become a believer and you have to tear some of that stuff down because it's, it's not helpful. Well, well, what happens in the meantime? Does Jesus say, oh, you're not doing it right, so I, I won't have anything to do with you till you get your act together. Right? Some of us would be like, yeah, I'm good with that because I'm a good rule follower. But internally... I'm still sick, right? I'm okay because I follow rules well. Or maybe you're like, I, it's too hard, I can't follow rules, so I just give up. Neither one of those are the only options. The other option is God comes and says, you're my beloved son, right? This is what he said to Christ. You're my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. He was done. He was finished. He was pleased with Jesus before Jesus ever did a thing. 
Now, D- Jesus went and lived a perfect life in response. This is who he was. This is who his father saw him as, who he was, and then he lived that perfectly. Right? Then he offers it to you and I as a gift, and it's settled in heaven forever and ever. It's done. Jesus said it this way. It is finished. All of it's finished. So when you believe in Christ, you're not going to get a progressive role of salvation. You're not going to get, if, I, if you do this well, it works out for you. Good luck with that, right? It's settled. It's finished. You are in Christ or you're not in Christ. There is no mostly in Christ. <laughs> but if you're in Christ, it settles it. And then there's grace. This is part of what the body brings. There's grace for you to grow up into everything God designed you to be. And part of the way that works is my grace gift, teaching or speaking or prophesying or whatever those grace gifts look like, help you to adjust those habits and be equipped, take those things down that are bad and build the things that are good and transform, be transformed by the renewing of your mind and coming into fullness and wholeness in God. That's the gift that I can give you with my gift. So eventually what happens is the way of your being, this is my friend Greg says it this way, the way of your being will align with the truth of your being. In other words, at some point, you grow up in Christ. You ever been, if you've been in Christ, you've, you've experienced this. You've done something that was really stupid. Maybe you didn't even know it was stupid. And some older brother or older sister says, what are you doing? And you're like, uh, <laughs> I'm guessing not well. <laughs> and they're like, yeah, not well. That was stupid. Why would you do that? Or maybe they're kinder than I would be. And they're like, no, this is why you shouldn't do that. And, they tell, and you go, oh, okay. I didn't even realize I was destroying myself. I'll quit doing that. There's a thought, right? Isn't this what you do with your kids? But when your kid poops in their diaper when they're little, you're like, ah, oh, really? You just get rid of them. <laughs> Perish the thought, right? Right? Well, well you think God's any different? Don't get me wrong, if you're pooping in your diaper at 16, your dad's going to have a talk with you. He'll still clean you up. He's going to have a talk with you. But I think you're above that, right? You're past that. Romans 5.16 talks about this, one of the things you do. He gave me the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God so that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to a God. I'm a holy priesthood. I have a role to play. So part of that is to preach the gospel, to declare the good news. It's what I've been doing this morning for the, most of this service. Priests offer service and they offer sacrifices. He gave me the priestly duty of proclaiming good news. It's not difficult. 1 Peter 4.10 says it this way, Every believer has received grace gifts, so use them to serve one another as faithful stewards of the many-colored tapestry of God's grace. Isn't that beautiful? It's a beautiful perspective. In other words, you've been given a gift. And the gift that God has placed inside of you, maybe you're a great leader, and you use that to make money. That's totally okay. God has no problem with you using your gift to make money. I'm good at sales. I want to sell. I'm good. Why? Because I've been given the gift of speaking, teaching, right? Some of that gift allows me to help influence others to buy a product. So my character has to be in place to decide whether the product's worth buying before I can ever sell it. Otherwise, I can't do it. I can't sell junk. I can't do it. But I've sold lots of things that were helpful for people. And part of my role was, I'm just going to tell you how helpful it is, and you decide what you're going to do with it. Make good money doing that, right? So my gift, can, it, it makes room for me even in the world. But, but let me say it this way. Your primary, the primary role of the gift in your life is not to serve yourself. It's not that you can't do that. It just isn't the primary role. The primary role of your gift is to serve others in the kingdom, to help build God's kingdom. Lastly, offering spiritual sacrifices is what we do. You have something to bring. 
Romans 12 says it like this. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. In other words, offering yourself is what God called you to do. This is Romans 12, 4, and I'll end with this. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. There's an obligation for you to serve. See, God didn't put the gift in you just to serve you and your family, although you use it for that, and you should. You're supposed to part of why I gave it to you. But the primary use was to build his kingdom. Why? Because this, what what we have here, this is temporary. But the kingdom is forever. It's eternal. Uh, Listen, I I love hugging trees as much as the next guy. I lived in California for several years, and I learned how to hug trees. Trees are wonderful things. I think trees are actually, you know, like in terms of robots, you know, how they're going to take over the world. I think if you just look at it logically, trees are providing oxygen. So really, trees are growing us up. One day we die, and then they use us as food. So I'm not sure how much we should love trees. I mean, I know I think weird sometimes. It's just the way I am. (laughs) So trees have value, but they don't have as much value as you. Even in your brokenness, this is difficult. Because it's, it's the only way we can see people in their brokenness is to have Christ inside of us who saw us in our brokenness and saw through our brokenness to bring us wholeness. And so the intention is God comes and he lives inside of me. He gives me a grace gift to serve others, to, an obligation that, that you are part of the body and that my gift, I owe you my gift. <laughs> and that's hard for us to remember. And I hear people say this all the time. They say, Dave, you don't understand. I'm too busy to serve at the church. I don't need your help. That's not how it works. We're not begging and pleading, pretty please, will you help us? That's not how it works. I wish it were sometimes. It would be easier. I could just use my salesmanship to motivate you and manipulate you and get you to do what I want. The thought arises sometimes in my head when I'm preaching. I'm just being honest. (laughs) But my character won't let me do that because it's wrong. We have this argument all the time. I say argument. We have this discussion all the time in leadership circles. What do you do when there's not enough people to serve in kids' church? Well, you invite people who, who come in there who just need to serve, and you manipulate them and make them feel guilty until they do. That's how we used to do it, right? We'd wear you out in about six months. We'd have to start the whole process all over again. And the good news is there's so many people rotating in from other churches that you can, you can get away with that for 15 years. But eventually it falls down on you. You know why? Because the kids suffer for it. Because we're not giving our kids the best. So what's God saying? God's saying, I've given you something. I've given you a gift. I've built you on a foundation that will never change. And I've given you a gift to help build that foundation in other people. So if you have a leadership gift, you can serve in any capacity. We have grace teams. They're all out there on the table. You can serve in the worship team with a leadership gift. You can serve in kids' church. What's your passion? What is it that God's got you excited about? What, where, would you, where do you want to build into people? For Karen and I, one of the things we love to do is build into leaders. It's something we love to do, right? I, I, I got invited recently to speak at a conference here in Dothan in the summer, which is exciting for me because we went and loved on some other leaders in a church in another place. Their, their leader who came to serve and, and you know, celebrate their year-long anniversary there or their year anniversary um, called and said, hey, you think that guy would be willing to preach in our conference? And he called me, and I was like, of course I'm willing. 
are you kidding me? That's half the reason why I came there. Sit through your service so I could be of service. That's the whole point, right? So God will make room for you, but you have to be willing to serve. And can I just say this? It's going to be inconvenient. Anybody tells you otherwise, they're lying to you. I wanted to sleep in this morning. I'll bet you did too. I mean, it's pretty sad that we start at 1015. I still wanted to sleep in. That's really sad, actually. <laughs> but it's in all of us to, to want to take care of ourselves. But we move and we do this when we understand the value of it. Dave Woodham led our worship this morning. He was, he was up a whole lot earlier than most of us. So was the, the team, the production team back there so that it would work well for us and, do, and, and bring his strength and bring his best to us on, on a given. I'm, I worked late into the night last night so I could bring this to you. Many of you guys do the same thing. Coffee was there this morning. It magically appeared out of nowhere. <laughs> we know better, right? So what's this all about? There's an obligation that God says, hey, I built this inside of you, and it's a blessing to you, and it's supposed to be. Use it. Make money with it. Be blessed. God causes you to walk in increase and abundance because of it. He will help you. Find that out. Discover what you're good at. Get good at it and get busy doing it. But primary, the primary use of your gift is to build the kingdom because what we build here is temporary. What we build there is forever. So if you're not serving, I want to challenge you to do that. Recognize the value. Don't do it because you feel guilty. It won't last the year if you feel guilty. But go back and discover, is this really true? And oftentimes I do this. I sit across from someone in our grace team when I'm inviting my own team and I say this. This is worth you laying your life down for because you're trading time for this. And I have to know that there's value in it. Otherwise, I can never ask you to participate because I'm not going to beg you. We're not going to play the volunteer role. We're not going to do any of that stuff because that's the world's way of doing it or religion's way of doing it. It's not God's way. But to remind you of the value that you have inside, that there is a place for you, that you have a role, that you can bring your sacrifices, and when you bring your sacrifices, it builds up the whole body, and it, and it causes us to be who God meant for us to be. It'll bless you. The gift inside of you will bless you. His Spirit is on you, for you, or is in you, for you. He's on you for others, and He's among us to impact the city. So think that through and make a decision about what you're going to do. Why don't you stand with me? Sorry I went over a little bit. I apologize. But it's important. I wanted to make sure I get through with it. So, Jesus, we just say thank you. Lord, thank you that sometimes we don't understand your ways, but what we do know is your ways are better than ours. They're higher than ours, Lord, and they're better. And so, Lord, help us to understand. Help us uh, to allow that to motivate us. But, Lord, even when we don't understand, to still obey and move forward in it. Lord, thank you that, that people serve in this body very, very faithfully. We're incredibly thankful for that. Um, much more than most churches can, can attest to. And so we're incredibly thankful. But Lord, your desire is to move us into perfect understanding of your kingdom and what we're on about so that we can impact people forever. Lord, do that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.